I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we derish chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the derish chai experiment. For the next three weeks, we're going to dig into an idea that was brought up several months ago. Now, this is something that I taught back at Sukkot this last year, 2021, and it is, in essence, a wrap-up of virtually everything that we have talked about in the Derish Chai experiment. It's a summation, almost, of the entire experiment, uh, as well as the practical applications of how to do that. And we're going to begin with an idea that's foundational to the Bible, and it's foundational to our understanding of faith, and that is the idea of allegiance. Allegiance is a word that might seem somewhat out of place in modern society. This is a word that's reserved for a world of kings and rulers and feudal alliances. It's a word for the realm of political maneuvering. It's a word even for the realm of waxing poetic about flags. Now, let's face it, we've all pledged allegiance to the flag of the United States or to the flag of our government of some sort, at least once in our lives. That is the nature of our world. It's a world of rulers who act in authority and subjects that then serve under those rulers. And the simple fact is that not a single one of us here is one of those people in authority. We are subject to the powers and the rulers of this world. But what does it mean to swear allegiance to something? Well, if we turn to Webster's Dictionary, we get this definition. Now, I know some people out there are like, oh, you're using an English dictionary to define Hebrew words. No, we're trying to get to a better understanding of the English ideals that are contained in Greek and Hebrew words. And the best way to do that is to consult an English dictionary, because frankly, I speak English, and so do all of my listeners, to one degree or another. So if we turn to Webster's Dictionary, we get this definition. 1a, it is the obligation of a feudal vassal to his liege lord. Well, there we go. Number one, this is primarily a feudal term. It means nothing to us. B, it's the fidelity owed to a subject or a citizen to a sovereign or a government, such as I pledge allegiance to my country. Next, it is an obligation of an alien to the government under which the alien resides. Two, it's a devotion or loyalty to a person, group, or cause, such as allegiance to a political party. So allegiance is primarily defined by describing a condition of loyalty, but also a condition of obligation to a person, government, or country. So allegiance can be boiled down to two aspects, loyalty and obligation. So what does loyalty mean? Now, sure, we all have an idea, but I want to be sure that there's no misunderstanding of terms that we're going to be using from here on out in this series of teachings. And so, once again, we'll turn to Merriam-Webster's Dictionary to get the English definition of this word. One, it is unswerving in allegiance, such as, A, faithful in allegiance to one's lawful king or government. B, 
faithful to a private person of whom faithfulness is due, such as the loyalty to a spouse. Or C, faithful to a cause, idea, custom, institution, or product, such as a loyal churchgoer. What do you know? Loyalty is defined by allegiance, and allegiance is defined by loyalty. Loyalty is a bond that cannot be broken by circumstance. No matter what happens, the things that you have sworn allegiance to in some ways demand loyalty and obligation from you. No matter what happens in your life, no matter what qualities the one that you are pledged to demonstrate, no matter whether you are victorious in battle or bowed in defeat, no matter if the one that you have pledged allegiance to is found to be brave or a coward, honorable or shameful, capable or woefully inept, loyalty means that you remain in the service of the entity that you have sworn allegiance to, no matter what. Allegiance means picking a side and sticking to it. It means putting the good of the entity that you have pledged to before your own. Allegiance is not a word or an idea that's to be taken lightly. It is a serious word, and it bears an implicit drive towards action. So when we turn to the New Testament, we discover that the word faith, in the Greek pistis or pisteo, might just have more to do with allegiance than with any way that we believe or think. It can be life-changing. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time making the case that faith is more about allegiance than ideas. The case has already been made, and better, by others. Matthew W. Bates covers this topic in great detail in his book Salvation Through Allegiance Alone, and in his follow-up book Gospel Allegiance. I also covered this topic in episode 126 of this podcast, so if you would like to dig deeper into this conclusion, you can turn to those resources among others. For now, we're simply going to take it as granted that the preponderance of evidence suggests that alongside the ideas of belief in something, or the idea of trust or trustworthiness, is the concept of allegiance when speaking of faith. And if we turn to Merriam-Webster's for the definition of faith, we find this reflected in the first given definition for this word. Allegiance to duty or a person. Loyalty and obligation. Now these words, faith, allegiance, and loyalty, they all speak of the same thing. They speak of joining yourself to another and putting yourself at the mercies of what that entity does in the future. When you do such a thing, your reputation as an individual gets wrapped up in the reputation of the one that you have pledged allegiance to. Your destiny also gets wrapped up in what that entity does. Now let's go through an experiment and explore this idea using a modern example of this. Let's use ourselves as the guinea pigs in this experiment. Now we have pledged allegiance to something as I stated before, and for the vast majority of us, if not everyone who is listening to me, the things that we pledged allegiance to was a flag that represents a country. We pledged allegiance to a piece of cloth that flutters in the sky. I pledge allegiance to the flag, we all said with our mouths as we covered our hearts in an act of sincerity and verity. And to the republic for which it stands, we said here in America. But at this point in American history, we stand at a crossroads because this pledge can be taken in one of two ways. The first is a pledge to the government. This is a pledge to the government that flies the flag, to remain loyal and subservient to those who operate this country in its current modern capacity. 
And yet we find our loyalty shifting if this is the view that we take. For eight years, we had a president who operated in the capacity of executive for this nation, and half of the nation would do anything that he said. They would apologize away any fault and highlight even to the point of absurdity anything that might fall in favor of this president. And then we got a new president, and suddenly those who could find no fault in the president found every fault, once again to the point of absurdity, and those who had found fault previously were suddenly on the side of the apologists, overlooking the dings and scratches, as it were, and highlighting only the good of the man in charge. And then we got our current president, and the roles shifted once again. The apologists become the critics, and the critics become the apologists. And this line between the detractors and the fanatics, it's a rather thin line, because it boils down to personal opinion that falls out in one of two ways. Do you think America was broken at its inception and it needs fixing? Or was America perfect when it was formed and we need to return to that perfection? And based on that thin line, the battle lines are drawn. One side fighting for the government as they envisioned that it could be, and the other side fighting for the government as they envisioned that it was, but with one thing in common. Both sides are certainly fighting. And what are we fighting for? Well, we're fighting for the thing that we have pledged our allegiance to, the nation that we live in and that we call home. So let's thought experiment this out. Let's say for the sake of the experiment, this divide, it ends up in violence. Civil War II is fought in American soil. Red on one side, blue on the other. When it comes to war, which side do you fight for? I don't need an answer, just think about it. The fact is, some of you knew your answer before I even got to the question. Some of us, we might have to think a little harder. Regardless of your answer, whether red or blue, you have found something to fight for, something to die for. But this question, it wasn't a real question. This is the question that the world is going to place before you if and when this situation arises. Either red or blue. There is no other option. And this, my friends, is what's called a false dichotomy. It's an old trick. You present two sides to an argument, and then you pretend that these are the only two sides that are available. So let's do another thought experiment. Let's say that you were presented with two cards face down on the table. You are told that one card has the word good on it, and the other card has the word evil on it. If you choose the wrong card, this game will end with your death. The cards are before you, and you must make a choice. So you reach out tentatively towards the cards that are face down on the table, and you choose one. You look at that card, and it is the card that has death on it. And something inside you suspects that this game is rigged against you. You suspect that both cards contain death as the result. What do you do in that moment? You were presented with two options, and you were told that one was right and good, and yet you suspect that both are in fact death. What do you do? Well, in this situation, you work within the rules of the game to make a third option, an option that will lead to life according to the rules of the game. In the case of these cards, the card that you have in your hands, you destroy that card. 
You burn it. You eat it. You deface it beyond recognition. Whatever you do, you do not show it to the judge. You force your fate onto the card that remains. If the remaining card says life, then you lost according to the rules of the game. But if the other card is stacked against you and it also says death, then by their own rules, you win. Now, while the metaphor is not perfect, it does demonstrate this type of choice. Regardless of which side you choose in a false dichotomy, regardless of which side you choose when you pledge allegiance to the things of this world, whether a nation, a government, a leader, or a cause, when you choose the things of this world, you will have chosen wrong. And on the day when your hand is checked by the judge, you will be left holding a card that demands your death. And yet there is a way out. There is an escape from this no-win situation, a way to destroy that card, proverbially. There's the third option, the way to eat the card and to swallow up death. And that way is to pledge your allegiance to something and someone that is not of this world. To recognize that the choices that you are presented by media and family and friends and governments and culture and the circumstances of your birth and all of their expectations, they are not the only choices. The only option that brings life in this world is to pledge allegiance to the God of life, to declare your faith to the King of Kings, the true master and ruler of this world. Because every other ruler, master, and king is simply a pretender. And the flags that one can pledge allegiance to, they're growing. All one needs to do to demonstrate their allegiance is to simply fly the flag. And every movement has its own. Gay pride, BLM, Donald Trump, Blue Lives Matter, Dixie, Don't Tread on Me, America, Australia, Russia, China, Britain, France, Germany, the EU, the UN... What are you willing to fight for? What are you willing to die for? Just fly the flag, and the fight will likely find you soon enough. But the only one worth pledging allegiance to does not have a flag. His nation is one that is not bound by rivers and mountains and oceans. His nation is not one that is run by legislatures and parliaments and congresses. This nation is not inhabited by people who primarily speak one language over another. This is a nation that is invading this world and is subverting the subjects of every other nation. It's turning us away from our allegiances that will fail, towards a cause that will never fail, a kingdom that will never fail, a king that will never choose wrong or turn to evil, the kingdom of heaven. And this was the gospel that Yeshua taught. There is a new kingdom that you can be part of, a kingdom that is not of this world. Simply change your allegiance from the things of this world, no matter what or who they might be, and place your allegiance in Hashem and his chosen king, Yeshua, and his kingdom. If you indicated that you would die for the red or the blue by making a decision earlier, let me ask you, right now, today, would you die for Yeshua? Okay, sure, we all say that. We would die if we were forced to die for him. Dying in this way, it's rather passive. It requires nothing of us other than to stand our ground. Simply a momentary decision when the choice is put to us, deny or die. 
Now all of that is admirable and the decision is easy when the choice is made so blatantly. So let me ask something else. Would you fight for Yeshua and his kingdom? Rather, would you live for his kingdom? Now many of you made the choice of the red or the blue when it came to war previously. Some of you, at least mentally, when it came to the thought of fighting for what you believe our nation should be, answered the question without hesitation. So let me ask you, not would you fight for Yeshua? Are you fighting for Yeshua? Because the simple fact is that we are at war. Every day is a war. But our enemy is not carnal. He's not physical. And so the war is not a physical war. And the fact is that the war is raging all around us. Do you realize that ancient Israel did not have a standing army until the time of the kings? During the conquest, during the judges, there was no army. All they had was a militia. Every man was a warrior. Every man was expected to fight when the enemy attacked. Well, the enemy is attacking. He is on our doorsteps and he is coming for blood. Are you fighting because your enemy is? He's coming to destroy you. He is doing everything in his power to tear apart the kingdom of God. Are you fighting? Are you praying? Are you reading your Bible? Is any of this even real to you? Or is it simply a social club that you enjoy as long as it doesn't expect anything from you? Is this just a mental exercise that occupies your thoughts but does little to motivate your actions? If you would fight your neighbor over red and blue, will you fight now for the very souls of men? Will you fight now for the good of the world? The problem that so many of us face is that we're so caught up in our personal fights that we simply have no extra bandwidth to fight for anything beyond ourselves. And so the first fight that we must engage in is the fight for ourselves. This is a fight that is winnable, but to win, we should start with some basics. Because so very few of us understand what allegiance actually entails for our lives. Because if we haven't previously understood faith to mean allegiance, then there is a great possibility that we're living out our faith incorrectly. And so that's what we're going to examine in this series. What does it mean to live out our faith when it is properly understood as allegiance to a king? And item number one, which we're going to spend the rest of today on, is the concept of priority. The things that you give allegiance to will have a place of priority in your life. Matthew 6, 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these shall be added to you. Matthew 13, 44 through 46, again, the kingdom of heavens is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man having found it, hid it. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heavens is like a man, a merchant seeking fine pearls, who, when he has found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Proverbs 3, 5-6, through 6, Trust in Hashem with all your heart, and lead not on your own understandings. Know Him in all your ways, and He makes all your paths straight. Psalm 27, 4, One matter I asked of Hashem, this I seek, to dwell in the house of Hashem all the days of my life, to see the pleasantness of Hashem, and to inquire in His temple. Seek first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness. Put him first. Put his kingdom first. And the most important of all, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, Hashem our God, Hashem is one. And you shall love Hashem with all your heart and with all your being and with all your resources. You see, we all have a million things in our lives that want to be priority. Families and jobs tend to be the first priority in most of our lives. Now, don't get me wrong. These things should be a priority, but not the priority. And frankly, most of us are so unaware of our lives that they just pass us by as we go from one thing to the next without any thought about priorities. And as we live life, the things we do, well, they don't end up matching what we think our priorities to be. We say God is our priority, but then when we think back on our days and examine how we've spent them, we discover that we've not done anything for or towards God in any way. No praying, no Bible reading, no meditation or contemplation or evangelism. We cleaned the house, maybe. We had time for social media, definitely. We had time for our jobs and our bosses. We had time for food. We had time for television or a video game. We even watch or listen to teachings on the Bible or have discussions about the Bible. But we don't read the Bible or pray to the one who gave us the Bible. We had time for every form of escapism, but we have not spent time with God. We say that we put God as our priority, but our examined lives do not exhibit this. When we honestly reflect on our lives and the things that do receive the priorities in our lives, that do receive the time of our lives, we can see clearly that what we say our priorities are and the things that we give priority, they're not the same. For most of us, jobs and social media and video games receive greater priority than anything related to God. And the true tragedy of life is that we simply don't know how to prioritize our lives. And so let's work on that. Not just recognizing that there is a disconnect between what we say about our priority and what we then live out as our priorities, but the tools that I'm going to give you today, if you use them, will pinpoint your actual priorities and then give you the opportunity to create and quantify what you want your priorities to be so that you can then move closer to them. Now, I suggest you take some notes on this part if you're not already, because this is something that we should all do. And by doing this, you will simplify your life in many ways that you cannot even imagine at this point. Now, this process is one that I learned from Josh Tolley, the entrepreneur, business coach, and teacher. Number one, Take an inventory of your life. This is everything that your life consists of. PTA, softball, your dog, your Netflix account, your AAA membership, your family, your church, God, etc. Now, this will likely take you pages and pages of paper to complete, and it might take you a few weeks to accomplish thoroughly. That's okay. It's okay to take time on this, but get everything, no matter how insignificant you might think that thing might be. 
This list is not going to be in any kind of order. It can be completely disorganized. Don't worry about it. Simply get everything on this list. Number two, once you have your list, put that list in priority order. So get out another sheet of paper and put the numbers one through the number of lines on the page. With your other list, move items to the order of priority that you want them to be. Don't worry yet about what they actually are. Determine what you want your priorities to be. Put them on the sheet of paper accordingly. Near the bottom, you're going to find that there are things that are not really part of your life as to be demonstrably significant. Things that you don't think about or that you spend only a moment on each month or each quarter. When you reach this line item, just write down everything left on your initial list or just discard the rest of it. That's the dross. That's the stuff that any bit of it could go away and you would be okay. Third, the red line. Now, this is the most important part of the process, and it is the one that most of us truly don't spend any time thinking about. Look at your list of priorities and ask yourself if you would die for item number one. Then would you die for item number two? Would you die for item number three? Continue down the list until you can honestly say that you would no longer die for the next item on that list. At that point, draw your red line. This line is where your very life falls on your priority list, and your life needs to be on your priority list. Now, as Westerners, this makes us uncomfortable because we rarely think about what we would die for. But the truth of the matter is that it is the things that you would die for that should be the things that you live for now. The rest of the things on the list, they're just the window dressing at this point. Now comes the really hard part. Examine where do you spend most of your time and money over the next few days or weeks or months after getting your priority list in order. Track where you are actually spending your time and your money. What does your life in action say about the things that matter to you? Does your life actually demonstrate that the things on your list are in fact priority? Or are you spending more time and more money below the line on the window dressing? Is there substance to your lived priorities? Or is it all just window dressing? Is that all your life consists of? Now, if there is a discrepancy, and there will be, because none of us, even those of us who have gone through this list already, we're not perfect in living this out. Regardless, when you find those areas of discrepancy, then comes the final question. Number five, what does it take to satisfy the things above the line? How does your life need to change? If the kingdom of God is truly your number one priority, then what do you need to do to make that a reality in the way you live? What might you have to give up to live like the kingdom of God is an actual priority? If your family is your priority, then what do you need to do to make things right and good with your spouse or your kids? The first line of family that many of us encounter. If work is your priority, would you die for your job? Then what do you have to give to demonstrate that your job is in fact a priority? And what each one of us is going to find is that when we examine our lives in all the messy detail, we are all hypocrites in this area. 
We claim to swear allegiance to Hashem. We claim that He and His kingdom is our priority. But when it comes down to living that out in our lives, we fail to be consistent. Everything else gets in the way. We don't live our priorities the way that we should. Now, for some of us, we tell ourselves that we're only not conforming to priorities because of one crisis or another. As soon as this crisis is over, we tell ourselves we'll get back on track. But then that's what our life becomes, a never-ending series of crisis management. And we never get to the place where we feel comfortable living out our priorities. But if we can't live out your priorities now, while facing these minor crises, what makes us think that we'll be able to live our priorities when everything turns against us? When our neighbors or our government or nature or even access to food or health or electricity, when these are gone. Because in times like those, we will find out not just what we'll die for, but we'll find out what we'll kill for. And the things that you will kill for and the things that you will die for will demonstrate your actual allegiance more clearly than any other means. And it is only the kingdom of heaven that requires you to hold back this killing urge. It is the only thing in this entire world that you can swear allegiance to and then demonstrate that allegiance in times of strife by not killing anyone. What will keep us living our priorities as we claim to have them aligned if we're not living them now while in relative ease? When the day comes to choose your allegiance, how can you know what you will choose unless you choose it now? Unless you have the practice of dealing with hardship as a result of living your life according to your stated priorities. Because allegiance to the kingdom of heaven and to the kingdom of life means putting these things first. It means that your comfort, your position, your honor, your power, your very basic human necessities come second to the kingdom of God. Matthew sixteen twenty four through 25 Then Yeshua said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. This is what it means to declare allegiance to Yeshua and to his kingdom. It means nothing else can come first. It means one master and one master alone, because no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve the kingdom of God and your stomach. You cannot serve the kingdom of God and your wallet. You cannot serve the kingdom of God and your family. If you do, then when God asks you to potentially give up any one of these things, you'll end up hating one master or the other. And the one that you truly love will only be discovered in the fallout of the decision that you will make in that moment of panic and stress. Because we as humans, we're very good at declaring our intentions to be one way while then demonstrating another. It is all too easy to do. Okay, so this is all fine and good, but can we get an example from Scripture of allegiance in action? This kind of allegiance played out in the life of an individual that we could then look to and emulate. And the simple answer is, pick one of the apostles, any one of them. Read their histories and the stories of their lives. They lived gospel allegiance out to the point of death. 
They were so offensive to the world and their sharing of the gospel that the powers that be, the governments and institutions of the day, their message of leaving behind the allegiances to kings and nations of this world threatened them. And so these institutions then conspired to put to death those who would spread this subversive message. But there is one apostle whose story is mostly told in the pages of Scripture. Many of the others we have to turn to history or legend or tradition to discover what they did with their lives, but not so with the Apostle Paul. The man who wrote the majority of the books of the New Testament, the man whose words form the backbone of our understanding of salvation and faith in this age of Messiah. And if we read his story, we find that Paul exhibited the single-minded devotion to the kingdom of God better than any other. He was a man driven to share the kingdom of God with others. He was willing to do what needed to be done. He was willing to pay any price. He was willing to obey to the point of death. And we catch glimpses of this drive throughout the book of Acts and the letters that he wrote to the various churches and individuals. Let's look to Acts 21, 8-15. And on the next day, we left and we came to Caesarea and went into the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this one had four maiden daughters who prophesied, and as we were staying many days, a certain prophet named Hegav came down from Judah, and having come to us, he took the girdle of Paul, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, Thus shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this girdle, and deliver him into the hands of the nations. And when we heard this, both we and those from that place begged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Master Yeshua. And as he could not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, Let the desire of the Master be done. And after those days, having made ready, we went up to Jerusalem. Paul was going to Jerusalem. In the previous chapter, we read this, Acts 20, 22-24. And now, see, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing what is going to meet me there, except the Holy Spirit witnesses in every city, saying that chains and pressures await me. But I do not count my life of any value to me, so that I might accomplish my mission with joy, and the service which I received from the Master Yeshua, to bear witness to the gospel of the grace of God. The Spirit compelled Paul to go to Jerusalem, and yet the Spirit also appointed in every city those who told Paul all that awaited him in Jerusalem was chains and persecution. And yet he went anyway. He went despite the threat to his life. He knew that as a servant of the High King, his life would not be wasted, and his death, when it was demanded of him, would also not be wasted. Both were tools to be spent in the service of the king and the kingdom of God. This is a drive that very few Westerners understand. My life is not my own. Our lives from the moment that we pledge our allegiance to the king of all creation are his to use for the spread of his kingdom. And this means doing what he requires. And if he requires our deaths, I like to think that most of us are ready. But what if he requires your life? What if he requires your now? 
What if he asks you to leave behind everything that you know and love and to go live in squalor and poverty for the sake of his kingdom? What if he demands your comfort from you before our society falls, before the end is obvious, before everything is taken away through circumstance? What if you have to step out in front of everyone you know and look like a fool for the sake of what God is asking you to do? Are you willing to walk away in a moment, even if it's not the second exodus or on to some great spiritual awakening? Are you willing to give anything or do anything for the sake of the kingdom of God? And so we need to think on our allegiance. We need to examine our priorities because this is the backbone of our salvation. But this insight is only the first step of the application of the definition of allegiance. There's more to this topic of allegiance to cover. There are rights and responsibilities that come along with citizenship to the kingdom of heaven. And so next week, we're going to look at the benefits package that's included in this topic of allegiance. And you might be surprised what the benefits package of the kingdom includes and the full scope of the implications of these benefits. And then finally, in teaching number three, we're going to examine the responsibility that's been placed on each one of us by our king. And we're going to dig in even deeper to our responsibilities that the kingdom of God places on all who enter in. Because allegiance, it's more than simply lip service. Faith, it's more than simply an idea that rolls around inside your head. Allegiance is a way of life. It is the driving force of a life. And allegiance to our God and King, it is no light matter. This allegiance, it breaks all other bonds of allegiance. Allegiance to country or king or cause or even secret society. No other allegiance is truly possible with allegiance to God. Only kingdom allegiance. And it's the only allegiance that matters. So Deresh Chai, seek life. And that can be done by pledging allegiance to the king of life. There is no other way. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deris Kai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deris Kai, as we seek life. Shalom.